You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Let's turn together to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be in the book of Mark this morning. And we're going to be in chapter 14. We're going to read from verses 12 to 31. Once you get over there, if you would stand with me, if you're able, in respect for God's word. Mark chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would help us, um, help us to see the glory and majesty and beauty of Jesus Christ. Help us to see that he was the perfect sacrifice. Lord, we want to know you more. We want to have our hearts changed. Lord, please help me to be clear, empower your word as it goes out and help us to submit to what you say and we want to see more of who you are lord help us rejoice in christ and to trust in him it's in his name we pray amen well as we come together this morning we're going to be talking about jesus christ but have you ever thought about what a strange thing we're doing right now we just sung about a song about a fountain filled with blood we We come together and sing about someone who died 2,000 years ago. 
and who was raised from the dead. We come together and we look at a book, a collection of books, the, the newest one of which is almost 2,000 years old, and someone explains it. Do you realize how crazy this looks to unbelievers, the things that we do? Maybe some of you are in here thinking, yeah, th this is nuts. But it's even worse than that. Not only, I mean, we talk about a Holy Spirit living inside of us. We take an offering. We close our eyes and talk to someone that none of us can see. These are things that, that people think are crazy, but, but not just that. It's even, even worse than that because in, in light of hurricanes and shootings and all the things you see every day on your news feed, many people, sometimes even, even followers of Christ, wonder, is what we're doing here even right? Is it immoral? Should we be out doing something else? Maybe we should be out helping people or, or doing random acts of kindness or trying to fix what's going on in our world. Some people say it's not only crazy what we're doing, it's not only a waste of time, but it's flat out wrong. And so we have a very serious question that we need to answer. In light of a world full of natural disasters and starvation and murder and thievery and war and famine and people in need of help. Is what we're doing even right this morning to spend an hour singing and talking about Jesus? And what we have to remember as a church is who God has called us to be. This church, the church globally, is not an organization, it's not a corporation, it is a group of people who have been saved and entrusted with the gospel, the good news of salvation, and the good news about Jesus Christ, and our mission is to, to guard, to preserve, and to proclaim that gospel to the world. We are not ultimately here as a church to fight social justice, or alleviate hunger, or provide disaster relief, or even promote peace and harmony in the world. We're not here to lobby for Judeo-Christian legal values, or to set up a Christian nation. Those things are things that Christians are engaged in. Of course we help the poor. Of course we meet needs wherever we can. That is what we do, but that is not ultimately what we are about as a church. Ultimately, what the world needs is to be given right standing before God. The root of all the mess and all the evil that we see in this world is not going to be solved by medicine or technology or a diet or some health. The world does not need better education or better infrastructure. There was a, a songwriter who said, we can't medicate man to perfection again. We can't legislate peace in our hearts. We can't educate sin from our souls. It's been there from the start. What's wrong with this world, we saw this in Romans last week with Pastor Mike, what's wrong with this world is that God is perfectly good. We are not, we are evil. And God's righteous wrath is being poured out. And what this world needs ultimately is to be made right with the living God. Amen? That is what, that is what they need. And that, that is what we need to be forgiven of sin, to have new hearts that no longer pour out selfish, murderous, greedy, proud thoughts. We need to be not only forgiven of sin, but made righteous and given right standing before God. And so as we come together, we are doing the most important thing in the universe. We are dealing with the one person, the one truth that can really fix the problems of our world.
This is not irrelevant. This is not a waste. This is not crazy. This is not immoral. This is the solution. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what our world needs. And so we come together to encourage one another, to learn about Christ, to see his glory, and then out of the overflow of that, to go take that out into the world and to share that with them. That's why we're here. And that's why it's not foolish to come together and sing praises to God and to talk about Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Today, we're going to be in Mark, and I want us to look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Message is called Faithful to the End. We want to see that Jesus is faithful in every detail to the very end of his life. It's like a runner. If you've ever run a, uh, a race or maybe especially a relay, you know how they get to the end and they're going to hand off the baton and it's like, just don't mess up at that point, right? Just don't, you've got, or in football, you've got four downs that you've got to hold them and then you win the Super Bowl, right? You can't mess up here. That's where we're at in Jesus' life. He's going to die on Friday, and we're at Thursday night in these verses. And so it's like Jesus is at the very end, and we're going to see that he is faithful in every detail to the very end, to the very end. And we're also going to see, I want to do this a very specific way. I want to do it by showing you that, that every detail matters, especially in the Old Testament. Sometimes we read our Old Testament, and, and I, know, I know how it is when it's a little bit confusing and it's difficult and maybe, maybe you read early in the morning and it's, you're groggy, it's tough, but I want us to see that every detail matters. God does not waste words. When we start to see kind of the, the New Testament becomes epic, there's no other way to say it, when we see that it's in one continuous stream from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You might, I don't know what your, uh, the thing you like, maybe it's Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or whatever book or movie that you think of when you have epic in your mind, but we need to remember God's a better storyteller than man. His story is even more epic, and sometimes we rush over the details that, that really show us the beauty. It's like some of you remember uh, TV before it was in color. I remember TV just before it was in HD. Uh, <laughs> but, but say you were watching a sporting event, the Super Bowl, say, and you're watching it in black and white. You know what's going on. You know who wins the game. You can see the numbers on the jersey. You know the score. You understand what happened. And that's like just reading our Bible. But when we start to to connect the dots between what, what the Old Testament, how it pours into the New Testament. It's like turning the HD switch on. I remember the first time my family got the HD TV and we kept saying over and over again, I can see the hairs in his beard. That was like the thing. Um, but that's a little bit what it's like. It's not that we bring new meaning in. It's not that we discover anything that wasn't there. It's just that we start to realize, wow, all the details pop. All the, the epicness of it comes out. And so I hope that we can do that a little bit today. I hope that you're encouraged in that, and I hope that you can, you're encouraged to see the faithfulness of Jesus and to see his glory. We need change at the heart level. Behavioral change, outward change, the root is our heart. That's what we need to change. And 2 Corinthians says that happens as we behold the glory of the Lord. And so we want to see that glory, that we want to be in awe of Jesus today. So we're going to do it in three kind of sections. He's, Jesus is faithful to the end in his obedience, his effectiveness, and his courage. That's kind of the breakdown for today. Obedience, effectiveness, and courage. And just to give a quick run-up to where we are in Mark, since we're jumping in at, towards, the, excuse me, towards the very end of Jesus' life, 
Mark has been showing that Jesus is this one that, that Isaiah prophesied called the servant that would come. And this servant would be the one who perfectly accomplishes God's will. He's obedient in every detail of what God wants so that he can give his life as a payment for sin, as a ransom for sin. And so Jesus has been obedient in every detail as he walks along and he has in mind this whole time he's going to one place, to the cross. That's why he came. Mark 10, 45 says he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is on his way to the cross. And in Mark 14, we come to this Thursday night before he is crucified on Friday. And we're first going to look at Jesus' obedience. Look down at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed to the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So Jesus is, at this point, outside of the city. He's in a town called Bethany. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but Passover is coming up, and they want to know, where, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat it? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Now this is odd, but not quite as odd. They're, the ladies would usually carry the water in the city. So a man carrying water would stand out, follow that guy, is what Jesus said. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, there's a question that should be coming up in our minds. And it's highlighted back in verse 3. It says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, and it goes on to, to talk about what happens, but Jesus is two miles outside of the city at this town called Bethany. It's on the Mount of Olives. And he's in Bethany, and he has a place. He... The night before, he, he eats a meal, and he has a place to stay. So the question is, Jesus, why go into the city to, to eat the meal? The question is highlighted by verse 26, where it says, after they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So he goes into the city, eats a meal, and goes right back out. Gets worse. Verse 2 tells us the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. So now we have him going into, into the city, which is basically the hornet's nest of all the people that want to capture him and kill him before the feast. Do you see how the question is starting to rise? Why do you do this, Jesus? Also, something we have to keep in mind, Bethany is about two miles, so imagine you've got sandals on, it's dusty, dirty, rocky. Some people after first hour said... You know, keep in mind, it's so rocky over there. They had actually been there. So it's rocky. It would probably take about an hour. You've got to go down into the Kidron Valley and then up, back up to Jerusalem. So give or take about an hour. So you've got Jesus now walking an hour into the city where they want to kill him, eating a meal, and turning right back around and walking out. Do you see? And one other thing, in junior high, we called this Spy Jesus. Because this is basically a clandestine operation that he's doing here. Because what's the whole fuss about going to the city, find the right guy, go to the room? Well, it's to avoid the, the capture. They're trying to arrest him. But why, why go to all this trouble? You have a perfectly good house where you can eat the Passover, right? Hmm. 
think the answer is shown if we know our Old Testament, if we go back and look at our Old Testament. God says in Deuteronomy 16.5, you may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. And further, 2 Chronicles 6.6, later in the future he says, I have chosen Jerusalem that my name may be there. So where does Jesus have to eat the Passover? First hour was louder than you, you have more people. Where does he have to eat the Passover? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He has to eat the Passover in Jerusalem or he has disobeyed God's word. If he disobeys God's word, he's not perfect. He can't be the perfect sacrifice. He can't go to the cross and pay for the sins of all who would trust in him. If Jesus doesn't make that trek into the city, that two-mile-hour hike, and do all this fuss, if he doesn't do that, you and I don't go to heaven. Do you see how he is obedient in what we would call some obscure Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy? And yet he is obedient in every single detail because he had to be perfect so that when we trust in him, not only could he forgive our sins, but he could take his perfect righteousness and place it on us and so that God could look, us, look at us and say, holy, right, justified, perfect. He was obedient in every detail, every detail. Let's keep going. Look now in verse 17. Jesus is obedient, and he shows his faithfulness also. As Look at verse 17. It says, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. We're going to actually loop back around to this section, but a few quick comments on it. Jesus is obedient in the midst of complete betrayal. Jesus is obedient, he says, he goes as it is written of him. He was in total control this whole time. He knew exactly where he was going. He knew exactly what he was doing. There was never a moment where it was out of control and, and he just happened to get murdered. No, this was purposeful. He was obedient to every detail so that he could fulfill our salvation. Verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So we talked about Jesus' obedience. Now we're going to talk about his effectiveness, which is kind of an odd word. You don't talk about people that way necessarily. Maybe in the business world you might talk about how effective you are. But Jesus 
we're going to look at this one line that he says, and we could really we could spend the whole time on this little chunk, but we're just going to look at the line that he says and see that Jesus is he is effective in carrying out God's plan. He's effective in carrying out God's plan. When Jesus dies, it works. It does what it was meant to do. So look at, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. That first phrase, blood of the covenant. That is a reference back to Exodus 24. In Exodus 24, if you remember, Moses gets the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, and he goes over them, basically, and at the end, he's, go- he's talking to the people, and it says, Moses, 20, Exodus 24, 7, Moses took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Did they do it? No. And we will be obedient. Were they obedient? No. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The rest of your Old Testament is a record of the people being disobedient and not keeping the words that they said that they would. Is that right? So the, the prophets then come along, and through the prophets, God says, this is a paraphrase, Look, your heart is hard. You can't love me. You can't be the people that I've called you to be, but I'm going to make a new covenant with you. In Jeremiah, he speaks about a day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And further down, he says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And Ezekiel says that someone will come who can inaugurate this new covenant and put God's spirit inside his people. We are going to take the bread of the cup today and we're going to remember what Jesus did on the cross. But I hope this helps us to see what he actually did. He is inaugurating this new covenant and the seal, it's not the blood of bulls and goats, it's his own blood that seals the covenant. Look at the next phrase, which is poured out for many. If you were to do a search, poured and many, Where do those occur close together in your Bible? You'd actually only find one place other than this. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, 12 says, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So, Throughout the book of Isaiah, he's been showing there is this one called the servant who will come, who can bear the sin of the many, who will pour his soul out to death. And it's interesting, if you were to look at the English kind of chapter headings that they put, Isaiah 53 talks about this servant. Isaiah 54, the chapter heading, is the eternal covenant of peace. 56, a few later, is salvation for foreigners. Tie it all together. We don't have time to do three chapters of Isaiah, but tie it all together, and basically what you get is Jesus is claiming, I am the one who can bring and inaugurate and initiate this new covenant that God said would come, and I am the one who Isaiah said would be able to take the sins of the many, pay for them, and bring in this eternal covenant of peace that will extend even to foreigners, to Gentiles, to you and me. And he will inaugurate this with his own blood by his death. 
That is what he purchased on the cross. He purchased all the promises of the new covenant that God's spirit would live in us, that he would give us a new heart, that he would write his law on our hearts so that we would want to do what pleases him. Jesus is effective in doing that. No one else could have done that. No one else can sum up all of prophecy and bring it together and fulfill it in his death. Jesus can do that. He's obedient. He's effective. Lastly, he's courageous. He is courageous. I hope we see his glory in all of these things. He is courageous. Look down at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And then you have Peter saying, I'm, I'm not going to betray you and, and all that. But look at verse 26. We would often just read right over this. After they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I just want to show you the way, if a, if a Jewish person is reading the Bible, it's a little bit like how we deal with sports. Uh, first hour didn't get these references, so we'll see how it goes. Uh, but if I were to say in a sports context, miracle or miracle on ice, do it, a lot of you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. If I were to say 81 points, who am I talking about? Kobe. If I was talking about Gretzky or Ali or Brady or Woods, you'd know who I'm referencing, and you might even be able to tell me some of the important games that they played in and details of that game. That's kind of how Old Testament, or, or that's how a Jewish person that knows their Old Testament would would read these stories. When they, don't, they wouldn't skim over this. When they hear that they went out to the Mount of Olives, here's what, here's what you have to realize. Jerusalem is a mountain. 2,500 feet up, I think it is. If you go east, you have to go down, and you go across the Kidron Valley. After you hit the Kidron Valley, then you go back and you get to the, the Mount of Olives, which is actually a mountain range. So you have the city and then this Kidron Valley running along the east of it with the Mount of Olives then further along over there. So, to get to the Mount of Olives, you have to exit the city to the east, go down into the valley, and then out to the Mount of Olives. That path was known to Jewish people. It was known. Let's look back at what they would have had in mind when they heard this. The first thing that they would have in mind is found in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel David has been given a promise that David, David's family is the family that the Savior and the Messiah will come from. David's family is the one who will have a king sitting on the throne forever. But within seven chapters, David has completely failed. He's committed murder, he's committed adultery, he has lied, and part of the, part of the repercussions of that was that his son, Absalom, betrays him and actually takes over and forces him out of the city. And in 2 Samuel 15, I'll start reading in verse 13, and I'm going to jump to 23. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. 
Jumping down to verse 23, it says, And all the land wept aloud as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. The king is in the city. He goes out to the east, over the Kidron, and flees out towards the wilderness. To get to the wilderness, you have to go over the Mount of Olives. So the question comes up at this point, how is God going to keep his promise? How is God not going to fail? The king utterly failed and is now driven out of the city. We have no king. How will God keep his promise? And now the kingdom is splintered and it actually gets even worse. The, the next reference to this route is in 2 Kings 25. If you remember, remember Israel is split into a northern and southern kingdom, and that southern kingdom, Judah, they have the line of the kings. They have David's line being carried on. And so, even with that line, God decides that he is going to allow the Babylonians to come in and to take the people into captivity, to take them over. And that is exactly what happens. And the last king of the southern kingdom, Zedekiah, is surrounded, and it says in 2 Kings 25.3, on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden, and the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. The Chaldeans eventually, the Babylonians eventually pursue the king, they catch him. That description of how they fled, guess what it is? It's exactly the same path. You go out to the east through the gates that they describe. It takes you down to the Kidron, and to get out in the direction of the Arabah, you go over the Kidron, up the Mount of Olives, and over out into the Arabah, into the wilderness. Now it's even worse. No king, no capital, no land, no blessing, David's last descendant has now fled into the wilderness. How is God going to keep his promise? And so what does, what does the Jewish mind think of when they hear Mark say, this one who's claiming to be the final true king goes out of the city toward the Mount of Olives. Now, whenever we look at something like this, I just want to take a moment. It's really important we need to make sure that Mark actually intended this, that God actually intended this connection to be made. Some of you might be skeptical and you're going, really? Are you sure? Um, so I just want to mention three or four things that, that point to this, and then we can talk about the importance of it. First, I said we'd go back to this. Jesus quotes Psalm 41. Remember he says, when they're eating dinner, he says, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. That's a quote from Psalm 41, or at least an allusion to Psalm 41. Psalm 41, we're pretty sure, was written when David was fleeing from Absalom. So Jesus has already set that in our minds, we should be thinking back towards when King David was running away. Secondly, Mark makes a point to mention the Mount of Olives by name. Remember, it, it's likely that, that the, just the paper for the book of Mark at that time was equivalent to about $1,000 our time. So he's not wasting words. And we believe that God inspired every word of the Bible, and so God never wastes words. 
And he mentions the Mount of Olives. He could have said that Jesus just went to Gethsemane, because that's what happens afterwards. He could have said they went back in the direction of Bethany. He could have said it many different ways, but he specifically mentions the Mount of Olives. Next, at the end of this section, Mark, verse 50 and 52, Mark really emphatically uses the word fled. He's making really clear, everybody ran away. Everybody fled. Jesus was there alone. And I don't know if you caught it when I was reading, but in both of the accounts of David and Zedekiah, that word is used to describe what they're doing. They're fleeing. It's the exact same word. It's Greek and Hebrew, but the, it's the, the word that is used in Hebrew for the same Greek word used by Mark. Now, Mark is also showing in this larger section that Jesus is faithful in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of difficulty like no one has ever seen. He's going to go into the Garden of Gethsemane and look at that cup and realize that is the wrath of God against sin, and he's going to face something that no one in history ever faced or ever will face again. And he's showing that Jesus is faithful in that. So for those reasons, I think Mark does intend us to make this connection. Now, so what? Jesus doesn't flee. It looks like he's going to. It looks like he's going the path that kings run away. But this king doesn't run away. Full knowing exactly what is going to happen, he stands in the garden, he looks at the cup of wrath, the harder than any trial any king ever faced, He's unjustly arrested and he goes right back into that city to die. Jesus is the king that never runs away, that never flees because he knew his purpose. He is obedient, he is effective, he is courageous. There's no king like him. So I want to talk to two groups as we finish up here. First, those of you who believe in Jesus, those who believe in Christ, who trusted in him for salvation, some of you might be thinking, uh, he didn't do very much application. That's Christian word for um, so what? What am I supposed to do? Uh, you know, that's great, those verses are great, but uh, my kids are driving me insane. Can you help me a little bit? Or I'm going to work tomorrow and my boss is miserable. Can you help me? How, how do I think through this? How do I handle this? And I don't want to ignore that or downplay that. I think that is helpful, but there's something I want to emphasize here. The Bible, sometimes we approach it like a reference book. I'm depressed. I need to flip to the right section. I'm angry. I need to memorize the correct verses that talk about anger. And those are, those are fine things. Or, or you all have seen three steps to be a better husband or five ways, five characteristics of a godly employee. Those are good and helpful things. But ultimately, the application of the Bible is worship. We, we come to the Bible for a person to see and to know and to delight in who God is, who Christ is. We don't come primarily to find a list of things to do. And at the root of our problems, they're worship problems. They're worship problems. When we react in anger, when I react in anger towards my wife, 
when we're continually longing for more and more stuff, when we lash out on the freeway with hatred in our heart towards another driver, when our eyes linger and we lust after someone, when our heart reacts in anger because things don't go the way we want, it's a worship problem. We are worshiping something or someone other than Christ. Sometimes it's ourself, our own comfort, our own pleasure. Sometimes we worship being in control. Sometimes we might worship our family and wanting a harmonious, happy, nice family. It might be any number of things. But ultimately, what we need is to be in awe of Jesus Christ. That will change our heart. That will change everything that you do and the way you think in every situation. The higher the view of Christ, the more you love him, it drives out all other loves. The more you see of his glory and beauty and majesty, the more you want him and not other things. And so it sets our priorities straight. And so I just want to remind us that that, that nitty-gritty application, it's good but ultimately, we come to Scripture to worship, and that changes every moment of our life. That will get down into the nitty-gritty when we worship Christ. And also, if you're a believer, I want, I want you to be encouraged as you read your Old Testament and your New Testament. Don't be discouraged. The details matter, and there is treasure there. There is wonderful things there. And you might be in a season in life, I, don't, I only have one uh, child. I, I have one daughter. It's already tough to do devotions. I can't imagine you people with more than that. I, I, I know that you might be in a season where you can't give it the time that you want. But know, have the conviction that it is precious. It is valuable. There is treasure there if we take the time to look and to pray, God, show me your glory in your word. And also we need to test ourselves and see if our, our devotions really live up to their name. I, we need to see, our, am I checking the box? Do I, think, do I think devotion just means I read it, check, move on? We need to examine our hearts and see, is there real devotion? I, I love Christ. I want more of him. And maybe you say that you follow Jesus, but you've never experienced that kind of worship. You've never been in awe of who Christ is. You may need to examine yourself to see if you know him because what God is seeking is worshipers and those whom Jesus saves, he gives them a heart of worship. For those of you who don't follow Christ, who don't know him, who've not surrendered your life to him, I just want to make really clear that Jesus is your only hope. We already spoke about this, but there is nothing on this earth. No amount of technological advances or diet or fixing the environment or social justice, no education system, no government, no leader, nothing can fix your problem if you don't trust in Jesus. He is the king that will never fail. And when he went on that cross, what happened? That cup that we talked about in Gethsemane, all of the righteous fury of God against sin fell on him for any who would trust in him. See, we've been talking about this in Romans with Pastor Mike. How can God 
be right, be righteous, and justify evil people? Is he just sweeping sin under the rug? And the cross is the ultimate answer, no. When you got cut off on the freeway, that sin will be paid for in hell or on the cross. There is not a single sin in the universe that will be swept under the rug or forgotten. God will deal with sin. But not only, if you trust in Jesus, not only does he forgive you and take your sin onto himself, but all of that obedience we talked about, that perfect, righteous life, he places that onto you if you trust in him, and God looks at you and says, pure, righteous, lovely, justified, no more anger, no more punishment, no more disappointment. That is what is offered to you you don't trust in Jesus, if you trust, if you place your faith in him, if you put your trust in him, if you say, I will go into eternity on the thread saying, I have only Jesus to hope in. I have no hope of getting to heaven except his righteousness. If you will put your trust in him, he will save you and you will have joy and peace. Give you a new heart. He'll inaugurate, he, he will, he will, be faithful to that new covenant that he talked about and he will be the king that never fails you, that never runs away if you will just trust in him. Admit to him, I need you, I am evil, I am wicked and I need saving. Forgive me, please give me your righteousness. I believe in Jesus. Don't trust in Christ. That's my plea for you today and if you are a believer, let that sink in again to your heart. Lord, I, I do trust in you. I depend on you. I need you. Let's pray. Lord, we, we, our hearts are slow and our hearts are hard. And even when we see Jesus' glory in your word, sometimes it's still we don't respond as we ought. We don't have the joy or the awe. And we just pray that you would give that to us. Help us to really worship you. Help us to know and to love Jesus Christ. For those in here who do not know you, Lord, I pray that they would trust you, lean and depend on Christ for salvation. God, we have no other hope apart from you. Give us joy and peace today. In Jesus' name, amen.